Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. the name of the film that we're going to be talking about? Uh, it's a movie called The Resort. Alright, and you directed this film, yeah? I did indeed. And do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what it's about? Sure. Um, it's set in a kind of a post-apocalyptic world, but a slightly different one than we used to, where there has been a, a kind of viral zombie-like outbreak, and um, but we won. In the, in, the, in the war that followed, we won. And um, in the 10 years of rebuilding, uh, some bright spark has come up with the idea of taking a Mediterranean, Mediterranean island, transforming it into a, an exclusive holiday resort, and it's the only place left where you can find the undead, and so the rich pay to go and revenge kill the, the last of the undead on the planet. It's kind and, of, oh, sorry, sorry? I was going to say, it's kind of like cleansing, cleansing the... Uh... The grief and the post-trauma of the of the war against the undead. Absolutely, and so the, the the principal character is a girl called Melanie, played by the fabulous Jessica de Gao, who um, is suffering from PTSD and and goes there in an attempt to kind of right her ill head. Um, and of course, unsurprisingly, for all the wheels come off very spectacularly. Indeed, they do. Now, when can people see this at Frightfest? Um, we're screening on the Saturday, which was the 27th, and we're screening three times uh, at 10.45 on the Horror Channel screen, at 1.30 on the Arrow screen, and at 4.15 in the afternoon on the Spice screen. Cool, cool. Now, if we start at the beginning of the process, you as the director, uh, at what stage was the script at when you came on board? Um, it was already quite a long way down. It was the first movie I'd ever done that I hadn't been part of the, the, the kind of inception of it. I, okay. um, it was the first time I'd, I'd been sent something that was already in a good state to the point where the film was already green lit when I, wow. was, when I was sent it. Um, it had been put together by the, one of the exec producers, Nick Giller, and um, the writer, and it, it, Paul Kirstenberger. And they'd... I think they'd been working on it for about a year and then taken it to Matador, who are one of the principal production companies on it. Although I think they've, they've changed their name since we, since we shot, or since I retired. Um, and so they were already quite a long way down the line. I think the biggest shift was that they were already discussing the original scripts had been set entirely in the UK. Right. And it was more like a kind of Nosley Safari Park kind of deal. Um, and they'd already made the decision that they wanted to make it more international. And so really the only thing I, I pitched when I went in um, was mostly the look and the vibe of the movie, but also a way to make the story play becoming more international. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So what, in, I mean, obviously it's nice to be asked to, to pitch on a job, but what, what was it, for you, from your point of view... What was it that was appealing then in terms of what was there? I think it was, the moment I read it, I kind of, 
the idea, one, I, I grew up loving Westworld. I thought Westworld was awesome uh, when I was a kid. And so the, the, the connections to that instantly kind of jump out. Um, but also the way it was pitched, it had this sense to it that I hadn't seen in in anything that involves zombies recently. I think there's been a trend within in zombie stuff where effectively it's become about a kind of contemporary Lord of the Flies in which it's it becomes entirely about what the world is about or what, what happens when the rules are taken away mm. and what we become when those rules are, are gone. Yes. Um, but they already had this picture of, the, of this, that they kind of reverse engineered from the basic idea, I think, um, of there being that we'd won this war. And that fascinated me. I instantly kind of... I, the, what I kept thinking was that this is like... We're so much more frightening when we win. Yeah, totally. As, as a race, uh, kind of jumped out at me. And I instantly thought that this was a story, because what they'd got in the original draft was that they were, I mean, I, I don't know whether, can I get into spoilers on this? Is the idea that people have kind of... <laughs> well, it's a, pre, it's a preview, but if you, I'll allow it, you can spoil as much as you want. It's up to you. Oh, I probably it's, shouldn't, actually. It's as you see um, fit. Effectively, oh, let's just say, it, I, I, I realised it, it was about the disenfranchised. And, and at the time, and this is the, I mean, the, the kind of horrific irony of the movies, we, we made it a, a little while ago. It's one of those ones, the sort of vagaries of the industry that we actually finished it quite uh, almost a year ago. Mm. Uh, and it's taken this long to kind of sort out and get out to the world. Um, and so when I originally was, had my first kind of phone conversation with the producers was the end of 2013. And I was talking about the disenfranchised and talking about the making the story international and actually was talking about Syria at that point, which at that point the, the kind of war hadn't really mm. turned into what it had turned into. And, but it would just coincided with a point where the news had caught on to the humanitarian disaster that was happening there in terms of refugees. And that had been grabbed by the politics and just turned into a political football and then kind of just been forgotten about. And so we, we, we talked about that almost in a kind of um, theoretical way, went the way we went with the movie, and then the closer, the more we were making, the more the world was coming to us, and then eventually kind of almost overtaking us and being even more fucking horrific than, than what we were initially thinking and talking about. Um, it was... And it was always... I mean, it was always there. It was always... I, I just suddenly thought... This had jumped on me in terms of being a, a topic that was a, of interest and pressing in the same way that Romero had done in the 70s. And it had that kind of great vibe of that clearly the, the story, it might not be subtle, and it's certainly not subtle in the final cut of the movie. Um, it's kind of laid on with the trowel, really. But but it's there, and it's an opinion, and it's a very genuine one, and it's... And it is doing that thing that a good genre should do, which is kind of hold a mirror up to the world. Oh no, no! I mean, I mean, I, 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 I when I was writing my review of it, um, yeah. I, I, I said bubbling away in the background is is an allegory of our times. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a year, and also I didn't put it in the review, but I was thinking about it a lot. Is that what's interesting? Is that um, when you, you said that humans aren't very good, uh, or <laughs> we show we show that humans aren't because we're not. And, and the one thing that, that after all this crisis, whatever caused the crisis, is not, is not necessarily nailed down. But one thing that survives the zombie apocalypse that the humans win is capitalism. Yeah, it's it's sort of an amazingly resilient <laughs> system, and it's the sense that clearly, though the few that are near the top are probably the ones who could afford the better barricades and stuff. So, so when things f are finished. It's their normal we have to return to. It's a bit funny enough. The other, the other comparison is when the banks crashed in two thousand eight. Mm -hmm. Instead of going right, we don't want this to happen again. How do we do this differently? The narrative went, how do we get back to normal? Which, in a way, the resort is is at that point where we're still grieving the fact yeah. that we've had to kill a load of people and basically a scorched earth policy is what's intimated, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, and completely. in the setup, I mean, that's that's not a spoiler. That's kind of what you saw. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, you know that in the first few minutes. Film. Yeah. So, so the idea that we've gone through this horrendous mass murder of Walking Dead to to get to where we are, and the first thing we do is try and build office blocks to get shops going again. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like I mean, it's... I, the thing is, like, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the economic crash. That's when I, I mean, <clears throat> I genuinely wasn't thinking about 
refugee crisis or anything when I was when I was initially about it, I li- it was in my head the disenfranchised, and that mm. spread across the entire spectrum, and entirely about the whole. I mean, there's all the cliches now, the 99%, 1% kind of, mm. like, occupy all of that kind of thing. But that sense of a voice for the disenfranchised just seemed to jump out. And what I loved about it was that I'm not a massive fan of um, genre where they kind of lay it on top of um, of, the, of what you're attempting to do. So they attempt to force an issue into something where it isn't there. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right in theme. <laughs> yeah, and it's sort of like, like, take me more seriously because I'm trying to ram this thing into it where yeah, it doesn't yeah. fit. What I loved about it was that the, the concept in itself, just it was just there. It was all just naturally there. Um, and, I mean, you were talking about the that capitalist side is actually one of the things I'm probably saddest about when it comes to, you know, working with a, a low-budget movie is that we had, we actually kind of gained out what, you see, you see London like briefly at the beginning of the movie um, before they go to the island, and we we had so many ideas and so many theories on how that would work and and how very much like you said in terms of you could see the social strata just instantly on a wide vista, mm. and then sadly like you know the, a combination of economics and pace and the need to get there and and get the the film moving. Um, meant that we had to lose most of that. I think that's one of the things that you always find in the movies. You, you walk away with so many orphaned, brilliant ideas, and probably your favourite ideas are the things that you never managed to put in the movie. But there, were, there was stuff to do with the way that world looked, where I could have spent an hour there. But the problem was I wasn't, it wasn't even allowed, really, the amount of time I've got. Because the one thing you have with a story like that is you know, if you tell people it's about going to an island, one, you know the island's going to, something terrible's going to happen. Mm. And and that being the case, you, you need a reason to not be there. You need to get there as quickly as you possibly can. Um, and deliver the, the side where you, you kind of, where you're being honest to the genre and being, being respectful to the generic elements, because I love that. One of the things I love about making genre pictures is that there are generic elements and the way you move those building blocks around. And sometimes you use them exactly as they should, and sometimes you try and spin them a little or do something a little different with them. Um, but it meant that I couldn't spend that much time in that, that kind of cool world. Um, well, not cool, it's actually terrifying world, but visually cool and brilliant to make. And, and, and I mean, obviously, two, two, two films that, that, that spring to mind watching it is um, like the zombie equivalent of Jurassic Park springs yeah. to mind. But also, in, 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 in the genre is obviously zombie flesh eaters, which, which takes place on Ireland too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that as well. This is where I probably start losing, um, <laughs> losing people listening because I'm considering the festival I'm going to. I'm probably not as big a horror fan as as other directors. Um, I've seen Zombie Flashes. It's the Lucio Fulci one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that the one with the dead eye? With the yes, yes, the, yes. The, going the, 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 I remember the that. Eye. <laughs> yeah. And the shark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm not as encyclopedic, probably, as I am about um, certain other movies, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm not as... Um... I'm, I'm, Steve, I'm literally referencing it because it's zombies on an island. And you've got <laughs> oh, zombies okay, on an okay, island. Cool. There's, no, there's no other technicality you're going to have to pull out of a hat in. And Which obviously, is, uh... the, the idea that tourism would see... An, sorry, that capitalism would see an opportunity in <laughs> inviting rich people to come and shoot things on an island, which means you're... <laughs> hermetically sealed from the real world from this infection as yeah, long as yeah. as long as you were uh, I mean in terms of that you know in terms of that, that certainly the, the the Jurassic Park thing being a, a, a more a bigger elephant in the room than zombie flesh eaters what, what, what was what were the sort of bit when you when you came on board and you start discussing what ideas you <laughs> had and what the screenwriter and producers already had down what what were the big challenges for you storytelling wise before you even moved into sort of production I think it was um, I think you do the same thing, right? And it's just that I, I think you, you struggle to find it, like most directors do the same thing, which mm-hmm. is I came in and um, I, I still remember how Paul Gerstenberger's face where I just did that thing. And I'd, ri- I'd written for years before I directed, for a few years before I, I got to direct my first feature. And so I'd been it. I've been that guy in the side of the room where the director comes in and goes, I absolutely love it. Let's change everything. <laughs> um, and I kind of, I obviously, and it's that, that's that need to kind of just 
find your way into it. And I've discovered that I do this usually, and because I'm so used to projects where I have instigated it, I can I do this and I don't know I'm sort of doing it because I'm arguing with myself where I'll just kind of push in every direction trying to find something. Right. And the problem was the film was already green lit. We had a start date. Um, and I was kind of pushing in all these directions of like where we could explore it. And I think my first thought was how do I not make this Westworld or Jurassic Park, essentially, because they're effectively okay. the same movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and in the end, I realised that you, you just kind of can't. One, because there's a sense that you need to, like, there's certain, like, practical things you need to do with that idea. And so what I realised was the first directions I was pushing it in, I was being completely, this is what I mean about the generic elements, and sometimes mm. we need to appreciate the ones that are just there. Because mm-hmm. I kept trying to push it to not be that. And I realized all I was doing was hiding from what was in plain sight. It was obvious. Like, mm. this is what it's about. It's a resort. It goes wrong. There's zombies on it. Like, unless you embrace that and just enjoy it and make it an enjoyable part of the experience, that you, you go to the control room and you know it's going to go wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you meet those like Because otherwise, one... The, the basic structure of the story doesn't work unless you're gonna you're gonna go there. Mm. Um, and two, you're actually all you. Everyone was just gonna realise it was just hiding from what it was, if you know what I mean, to a certain degree. And so I figured it took me a little bit of time, and Paul was incredibly like patient as I kind of went round the houses to come back to kind of yeah, this is what we need to do. This we need mm. to. You know, I think originally I think I'd looked at maybe not having a lot of that behind-the-scenes stuff, just simply because I'd got it in my head that the audience would, would know it because they'd seen those movies. Mm. And then when we got drafts that sort of did that, I realised that actually it just took away a certain element of fun. And there was something about the idea of the film, because the themes were heavy, um, the underlying themes were heavy, there's a concept about going to this place and what it is that much as it's got an idea that works, it had to have a certain level of fun to it as well. It had to be an enjoyable picture. And one of the things that they, they, the, when I say they, the, the finances, the, the execs, the people who'd already committed to the movie and, and commissioned the script long before I came in, one of the things they, they, they said from the start, in fact, one of the only things, they, they were fabulous in terms of giving me a lot of room to play. Mm. But one thing they did say was that they didn't want it to be an out-and-out horror film. Okay. And that they wanted it to be almost like an action-adventure movie that happened to have zombies and horror elements in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no problem with that, because like, my first picture had been a, a straight kind of siege horror flick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of... I, quite, I just liked the idea. I like that. I, I think, obviously, I think in the back of their head what they were thinking was the movies that had inspired it in terms of Westworld, Jurassic Park, whatever, they'd already, that they weren't horror films as such, that they were action-adventure movies. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like Poseidon Adventure, aren't they? Really? Yeah, exactly. In, in a sense. Um, and, uh, well, they are, I mean, they're, they're just disaster, disaster movies. Disaster they're movies, perfect disaster, 70s, uh, yeah. disaster movie structure, yeah. but with like kind of this wonderful techno element laid on top. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and so I, I kind of thought, and this, I think this was all the process of like kind of going in all these directions to then kind of bring it back. So I think there was a version in my head when I first died that was almost entirely from the lead character Melanie's point of view. And you would just have these kind of, these sort of long lens POV shots of the world, as it were, and how, how she would kind of, um, she would, you would kind of guess that things were going wrong entirely from what she was seeing. Mm. Uh, and then I realised that was just pretentious as fuck, really. Um, I just needed to kind of embrace what it was, enjoy that, and and hopefully the audience would enjoy it as much as I would. Yeah, because um, I guess I guess what's true to the story, not obviously where it ends. If you if such a place had been created and you had either a spent tens of thousands to get there, or b as the, the young kids who were in it have won a yeah. competition and they feel excited to be doing something they probably couldn't afford in reality. <laughs> There'd be the fun element is the doing it, isn't it? We we as we as people that haven't survived a, a zombie apocalypse can't appreciate the post <laughs> the post apocalyptic high. Of- well, I think I, I actually, I mean, I think that's definitely a point of it. And it was one of those ones where it was it, I, a lot of credit here goes to um, producer Charlotte Walls, who 
I was pushing in this direction, and I and she was the one that, and she's got this great way of very calmly kind of asking me a question in a brilliantly rhetorical way where I answer and change what I'm doing. And <laughs> <laughs> um, she do it, she do it all the time in the movie. And there was this kind of version that was, and it was getting darker and darker and darker. And then she kind of pointed out to me that early on when I was talking, I'd said that one of this, when I was talking to my friends and stuff about the movie, when I was kind of moving towards doing it, everyone had said, like, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the movie had kind of forgotten, in going that way, I'd kind of forgotten the bit that was fun. And that you needed, you needed to at least for a portion of the movie, see how enjoyable it is for the people that go there. Yeah. For sure. And so, in the end, what I'd actually where I was going initially in development was actually like kind of the worst holiday ever. <laughs> it was just like really fucking depressing. It was like this girl goes there and attempts to sort out her issues, um, and it was like therapy. And there happened to be some rotten flash knocking about. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of credit goes to exactly what you're saying. There was pointed out to me quite early in development, and I realised that, that then it became embracing that. And once I did that, then it, it led to some of my favourite bits in the movie, bits I enjoy, like little moments I enjoy with some of the the, the kind of the, the rich clientele going there and actually experiencing the island and stuff. Was have, you, have, you, have you ever read, um, not, not, not the film, have you read the book, World War Z? I have, yes. So, um, what, what, but what, I read it years and years ago. A bit that's always stuck. Me on it, I'll probably fuck no, up. no, no, it's not, it's not, no, Ed, what I'm saying, what you've captured is some of the things that's good about the book that was sadly lost in the film is the stupidity and arrogance of us, the human race, mm -hmm. in the face of the undead. And in your particular instance, where you're, you're going through the world, going through rehabilitation, where, I mean, mm -hmm. you don't show it, but imagining there's a lot of the earth that you can't live on anymore. That's what I've imagined. Yeah, we had we had a lot of that stuff worked out as well. That was yeah. desperate and I couldn't. Yeah, but, but no, but about, what, it, about what the world it, actually looked it's like. In, it's all in, it was it, it's, it's enough for me to fill the gaps, and it's all right for the audience to do some work. Mm -hmm. But but what I mean is, is the characters you bring into the hotel and the way the resort works reminded me of the North Americans heading to Canada and dynamite in the lake because they kind of think everything will be back to normal soon, so we just need to... Instead of this idea of... Oh, fuck, yeah. I remember that. That, that bit always the, stuck the, the, the It's mind. really odd. When I think of the book, the two sequences I remember are that... There's that phenomenal set piece where they attempt to stop them outside New York or in New yeah. Jersey or yeah, somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a sequence in India where they're... Oh, the India bit always... And they're yeah, coming right. out of the sea and yes. climbing up. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the idea of that, that wonderful image, which I, I remember... I do remember coming up. Isn't is it is it World War Z that's got the idea of dust where they don't blink and so dust collects on their eyes oh, and creates this incredible shimmery effect. So you remember? Just oh, seriously, it's just that that bit where it's the idea of the kind of you know recreational vehicles all heading north to get away from the zombies, and yeah. when they get to wherever they go, they just obliterate everything because the idea yeah. of living sustainably has disappeared. Equally, you, in your world, it's like, in living memory, there were zombies dominating the world, and we've beaten them, and the first thing we can think of doing is to use our newly accrued wealth to go and shoot some for fun. Yeah. It's like we've, 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 we've psychologically tortured ourselves, so, you know, like your main character who's still bringing the bad dreams, and even yeah. Martin McCann's character is someone who fought in the war but didn't, like, doesn't enjoy yeah. remembering that he fought in the war. I think that was, that was one of those ones where I, I was really blessed with Martin because um, Martin came to it really late. I think initially he wasn't considered because I don't think he was available. Okay. And it's just like the way the industry works that he, he wasn't on any list he, I was shown originally and we were, we were looking at various folk and um, and then literally someone said it really late in the day, incredibly late. I mean, I was already... In Wales, which is where we shot the interiors, all the sets were done in Wales, mm. and then we shot all the exteriors in Mallorca. Um, when when someone suggested him, but he's such an a, a amazingly edgy actor, and the thing he got, he came in on such short notice. But what he got straight away was this guy who just doesn't quite. He, he's built this wonderful facade of being a completely normal person, um, and yet what made him uh, is actually, like, just millimetres underneath the surface. Mm. And there's something sort of edgy about Martin that's just lovely. And what's great is I don't think we ever really had to overstate it in the movie. It's like, 
it's one of those great arcs that's maybe like three or four moments, but it lands because Martin's so good at what he does. Well, I think as well, I mean, in, in the context of me watching the film, it's like he's got, opposite to him, you've got the Dougray Scott character who, <laughs> who's a bit more upfront about his, his kind of expertise, as it were, and yeah. thirst for wanting to do it, uh, or, or wanting to sort of rid himself of whatever demons he's got. Absolutely. I mean, I think because Degray was the most, he was another one of those embrace the moment or embrace the genre. Like, yeah. we, we, we knew we needed effectively a Steve McQueen, like somebody who was just built for that world. Mm. And, and very sadly, like, there was a, a kind of odd set of circumstances in the moment. We couldn't shoot um, the moment, actually, my favorite line in the script for him never made it on the, into the, the finished movie where. Um, Someone was supposed to ask him about being there a few times. It was like it was almost like a play on those gags about, you know, uh, when you meet Snake Plissken a million times and everyone says, "I thought you'd be taught." Mm. That, that kind of thing. There was a thing about what he was doing there that ran through the movie. Um, one of his responses was, um, "It's just better them than some guy who shortchanges me one day." <laughs> and I, I fucking love that line. And it's, it's so sad that we couldn't. We in the end, it just. A whole set of circumstances conspired against us and we couldn't put it in the film. Um, and I always miss it. I always know it's like that horrible thing. Like, I remember trying to explain to someone once about watching your own films and saying that the closest I've ever been able to explain it is like, imagine your favourite movie and imagine watching your favourite scene in your favourite movie and you can't watch it because all you can do is focus on a lampshade in the background of the shot. <laughs> and it's kind of like, it, it's like that. It's like, I can just see too much beyond the frame. And... Um, and there's a kind of, and every time I know where that scene would have been in the movie, <laughs> and as it cuts, I'm like, ah, that's the moment when like Dugray's character would have. I think it just it defined him perfectly in that sense of that, that what we wanted with everybody in the movie was the sense that you, they were a reaction to the world that had created them. Mm. And so the kids had all grown up almost in that post-world that maybe they were like toddlers, but they had no real memory. And so it was just all good, and it was all just fun. Um, but also in this kind of weirdly callous way. And yet you, the moment you, you take the rules away, the kind of game-like nature of it, then they're instantly just reduced to being real kids. Mm, yeah, they're not, um, they're not adults at all. Intellectually, they can be yeah. prepared for anything, but emotionally, they're prepared for nothing. Exactly. And then Ellen's character um, is very much about the, the idea of um, the kind of guardian-reading liberal middle-class kind of guilt <laughs> reaction to a lot of stuff. Well, no, no. I mean, it, 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 and I watch. I've been watching a lot of um, sort of what they call alt conservatism mm -hmm. in, in America um, on, on the kind of YouTube news channels. And oh yeah, I mean you, that's that's properly fucking terrifying stuff. The the, the dude from Beatbar that's just taken over um, Trump's campaign, isn't he? He's, he's the whole alt right. Yeah, yeah he's he's kind yeah, of the poster boy for it. Milo uh, fucking prick. But you've got you've also got like Ga uh, Gavin McInnes who created Vice magazine. He's, he's he's part of it, and they they a lot of their narrative is not necessarily what's bad in the world. It's the fact that there are tolerant liberals yeah. on the left who are also the enemy because they're tolerant. And it's it's really interesting and spiteful at the same time the way they talk. And obviously, you've got this character in yours who who it's 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 surreal to think of there being some empathy towards the undead. <laughs> but obviously you've got the great line, I can't remember exactly the words, but so forgive me. It's something like, you know, if we, this is how we treat the, if this is the way we treat oh, the dead, yeah, you know, it'll, it'll, yeah, yeah. it'll be the living next or something, you know. And just, it's just a throwaway line, but it's kind of like, it's exactly the same as somebody saying, if this is the way we treat people who've been bombed out of their home, you know, the next time it'll be people living on the estate near your house, you know. So yeah. it's the same kind of jumps of logic and, and, and a want to form an understanding of the world because, you know, many of us at different stages in our lives just, like, must all think at some point, Christ, can, can I just get off this bus for a minute? I just want to have a rest because the world doesn't doesn't stop, does it? It's relentless. And, and I think, again, that's something that on, on the bigger politic of the film is is what's captured there in, in, in the story that, that we're following. Yeah, I mean, I think with her, it's, it, and I think what Ellen does beautifully is that is that sense of like it, that it's a coping mechanism rather than a kind of sort of teen it's not just sort of teen lefty thinking 
no, 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 and that's like I said. That's I what... think there's a genuine. She's. She. It's like a facade she's constructed, just much as like everybody else, in an attempt to kind of justify some, make sense of it all in some way. Um, I've, yeah, I've, had, I've, I've had conversations with people who said to me, "But, but austerity is not affected you, Stuart." And I said, and I've like said, "Yeah, but there's more than me lives in this country." It's like, does no one seem to realise that, like, you're surrounded by people who are, yeah. and the way they live their life and their demeanour is sooner or later going to affect you, even if it is just literally how fucked off they are standing in front of a queue and you in Tesco's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it will create a demeanour. It's really odd, like, I'm kind of, uh, I'm a child of the 80s, and, uh, and it, it, I was, like, watching the, kind of, the government fall apart post-Brexit, and Labour going to kind of meltdown over whatever. And texted a friend of mine and just said, like, literally, like, when you look at it, you've got, like, this kind of cold, callous-appearing woman taking over the country. You've got uh, uh, the left being portrayed in the media as completely unelectable. Um, like, literally, all you need is Alan Bleas to start writing plays again, and I, I could legitimately say I'm time traveling. Yeah, it, no, no, it, I, I am, a, I am the same, I am the same vintage. It's, it's scary. <laughs> I don't know what's more depressing, that or the fact that I'm old enough to know I'm living through it for the second time. Well, it, it's better to be aware of it than. than yeah. I was I had this surreal conversation with a friend of mine at a shop, and it was he, he's got some young lads that work there, and they're all under thirty. And when the when the crash happened in two thousand eight. They they actually asked us, had there been a recession before? Fuck me. So it's that. I mean, you're millennials in the in the you know your two your two kids who are in it who are just mm. pain in the ass, intolerant because they everything's just like being high on coke. Um, is <clears throat> is pretty accurate, you know, in terms of if, if if my life is just about what I can consume, then nothing can get in the way of me as long as I can afford to do it. Yeah. So a level of complacency creeps into the way I live my life because I'm not struggling. Mm -hmm. Therefore, life is brilliant. So what's everyone complaining about? Which, to be honest with you, is a lot of what I kind of don't need to send into this conversation, but it's a lot of what I see from the alt right is that they they talk about the fact that well they're all right. This is okay. I can do this. So if I can do this, why can't everybody else? I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, there's plenty of people in the public eye who've done it. You know, if I can be successful, why can't everybody else be successful? Well, because of lots of variables. So let's not let's not dwell <laughs> it too much. Now, look, one of the big, one of the main things, and it being a zombie flick, um, is despite you sitting on an island, there still is the element of scale, you know, and if I can compare that to your other films. Yeah. You know, like in particular the first Outpost, which is mm -hmm. clearly takes us from a wide point and then brings us to largely most of the action happening in a field, yeah. being surrounded by supernatural and then going into the um, underground and, and finding out mm -hmm. what we find there. So you didn't have that kind of central focal point. What you have in this one is, is obviously it goes tits up. Yeah. And what we have is a race between, and I won't spoil it, there's a race between two things. One of them obviously being the, the zombies, mm -hmm. um, but there's also another reason why we need to get off the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is, which is arguably as threatening as, as yeah. the zombies. So, with with having to convey that sense of scale, how did you start thinking about that from a directing point of view, and was and was was it on the page for you to to to, to see it before you even got to the island and stuff? I, probably, I don't think it was. I think um, I think it was smaller. Maybe it was a bit smaller on the page, but only I think because Paul had pretty much been told like it was going to be a low budget movie, oh. um, and then. I think one of the things that when I was talking to them initially before I'd been hired, there was that feeling that they wanted it to feel big and how that was going to be doable on a low budget. Um, and so in the end it became, I think with a lot of that sort of stuff, it becomes a game in terms of the way you shoot. So you, you have to kind of think it through. Effectively, I realised it, it, it's a movie that, that builds a certain thing and then it becomes effectively almost a road movie sort of yeah, construction yeah, yeah. For, the, for the second half. Yeah, totally. Um, and so what I tried to do, what my initial plan was that I was going to try and uh, save the money but still have the scale by using everywhere twice. So okay. I was going to basically have them go to a place and then come back. I get you, I get you, yeah, yeah. And then I could, and then I could 
I, I needed that meant I needed half as many locations, but at the same time, I could really imbue them with the kind of scale that you would buy. That this place was an expensive kind of a place on on pennies. And then, unfortunately, what I realised was that um, I would need surprises in the second half of the film, and so that kind of it meant I could sort of do it, but kind of put a kibosh on it as well. And so, honestly, from that point on, it becomes about knowing sort of what you want and trusting everyone around you to be able to do it. And in the end, a lot of that comes down to uh, Roman Ozen, the brilliant director of photography, um, uh, James Lapsley, a production designer who mm. buried, buried himself trying to deliver <laughs> things where I just kept saying, can it be bigger? He's like, no, please be bigger. <laughs> I just sit there and just keep saying, can I, can I, can I have this, can I have that? Um, or Ali Mitchell, who's, I think that, the costume design um, is, I think, is fabulous in the movie. And one of the things it does, it's incredibly hard, actually. And, and it, again, like James, the production designer, and Ali, the costume designer, had basically two jobs on the movie. And I hadn't realised that when we started how hard it was going to be to do two things. Because you've got the entire scale of doing a movie, which mm. is tough. You've got a, you're shooting way out of sequence. On this, you're shooting in two countries. You've got to make everything match when we're shooting massively out of sequence, sometimes in the same scene. Um, and everything's got to fit. But on top of that, we had to legitimately build something. There's a reason why these films normally cost a fuck lot of money. Yeah, yeah, and That's yeah. because the branding side of it is something that costs millions normally when a real resort does it. And it's been, it's been fully tested, and it's been thought through, and it's been test, focus-grouped, and done in such a way that it, the identity of something at a Disneyland or a Universal Studios or whatever has been so developed over years. And we had basically like, you know, kind of 12 weeks from a standing start to come up with an identity for this place that you would kind of just get and that you would look at stuff and you would buy it and it wouldn't feel cheap. It wouldn't feel like... I, I, I think it's probably not the best analogy, but the one I kept using to the folk at the time was how much I, the, you know, the, when you're watching a movie and you have a clip of a movie in a movie where they've had to shoot a scene from a film? Yeah. And they always never quite work. They always look cheap because they've actually got to fit that shoot into the, the overall shoot of a main movie. Got you. And so these extra clips that are supposed to be suddenly from a, like, so you've got... I don't know, for whatever reason, you've got uh, an actor in the movie who's playing an actor, and they've just been in a $100 million movie, and you have a clip from the $100 million movie, and it clearly was shot in a day. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what they can own, that's all anyone can really do, even when they've sort of got money. Um, it's like Photoshop pictures in, in picture frames. Exactly. And so it was... Um, my worst fear was that sense that you just wouldn't buy the place. You had to just inherently get it and just sort of buy it. Well, you, should, you should go into. I was going to say that you should go into business consultancy because you, the look and feel of the place. I, I was, I was on brand with it by by the yeah. by the opening ten minutes. Once I was on the resort, I felt, <laughs> I, I felt, I felt it was real. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that comes down. I, I've got to give huge, huge props to James Lapsley designed the logo. Yeah, and we went through millions. I can that. Honestly, it's, it's, it works. Yeah. It all it scans, doesn't it, across the different yeah, places. No, well, you that's see the it. thing. You see it and you get it, and it goes everywhere, and it works. But also then there was this like, and this is what happens when I'm, I'm very much kind of family orientated when it comes to crew. I try and use the same people a lot. Mm-hmm. And Ali and, and James had, had worked together on my previous picture and we're friends and we're all friends together, like kind of outside of, of work. And trying to find this look was like a one identifying thing that we could throw at everything. And in the end, there was a moment where Lapsley sent me a drawing of he just quickly photoshopped onto a picture of a Land Rover the idea that it would have le- um, zebra stripes, but they were red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like this, this red and white look. And I just thought, that, that, that's it. It's just garish enough. And, and it has that kind of slightly kind of faux cool, kind of Virgin Atlantic thing about it. Um, it, has, it has the campness of uniform. Exactly. With, with and, but also with a kind of a want to be... Official loom as well, but it's not quite doing it because it's a holiday resort, isn't it? Completely. And then Ali grabbed that from an image I showed her and then just transformed it into dresses, jackets, an entire line. Gee whiz. It's just enough that you sort of see 
and we would just place folk with like around. Mm. And the idea is that because effectively the um, and this is this is one of those ones where you, you you kind of see it. I don't suppose you saw the the Night Porter, the the big BBC drama uh, that was on earlier I, in the year with Tom Hiddleston. I didn't. Night Manager, you mean? Yeah, Night Manager. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, yes, the, yes. The Night Porter is the um, Charles Rumpling movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, I did the, see it. <laughs> yeah, that was all done. Um, so there's an enormous amount of VFX work in ours, but the place where Hugh Laurie lives in that is actually where we shot in, in Mallorca. Ah, okay. uh, um, but what we did was we, we put digital buildings all over the top of various things <laughs> and did all kinds of stuff. It was amazing. I, I, through me, I kind of really, I kind of struggled a bit with the night manager because I just knew every inch of that place. I knew exactly where they'd gone and where they were cheating stuff. Um, but effectively what it was, was we, it was a, it was a real location that we dressed within the limits of what we could budget-wise and then allowed costume and, and everything else. It, be, it becomes a dance in terms yeah, of creative yeah, yeah. scale. You, you know you can't do everything. And so what you have to do is know the shots you're going to hit that will sell it, dress everything right, and move it around. Um, and then the rest becomes trying to hit your, your sort of schedule. So there's like, I mean... Probably one of the biggest set pieces in the movie. There's a sequence in the campsite about halfway through the film. Mm. That's one of those scenes that I'm kind of proud of on one level and not on the other. So it doesn't really look like I ever intended it to. There's a kind of long take vibe to the film generally that mm -hmm. we kind of stuck to. That then it's supposed to get faster and faster and faster as the film goes on until it becomes kind of chaotic. Yeah. So it's supposed to be a. The idea was that first half of the film would be this smooth experience that's exactly how the, the island would want you to see it. And so everything's on dolly and tracks and everything's on steady cam and it's like this gliding, nice experience. I get you. And then the idea is when it falls apart, it becomes more and more handheld until by the end it's just complete chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, that set piece meant I had to break that rule a little. And that was simply, and this is where low budget comes in, but you still need the scale. We had to shoot that you're only allowed so much money and time in spain and because that sequence is at night it was felt that we would be wasting time in spain not being able to see that we were in spain and so what actually happened was that we shot we rebuilt that campsite perfectly outside the studios in wales <laughs> oh you're pulling the curtains back on me now right so that's the wizard of oz yeah, that sequence is actually a combination of... So the, the scene where the girls are talking yeah. is done in Wales, and it's so cold that in between, on the moment of cut, people are running in and throwing duvets and everything on them. Because wow. even though it was kind of summery when we shot, it's still cold and it's, you know, nights in Wales. What? Um, so that's there. And then what we did was we rebuilt that entire camp in New York later for the sequences when they're there and they're talking in the daylight. But also, we got rained out... <laughs> On one and a half of the days we had, I sort of three, four days to shoot the sequence. You got we rained out. out. You rained out in Mallorca. No, we were rained out in Wales oh, right. in the fake version. Yeah. And so that that whole sequence is actually a combination of it was half of it was shot in Wales, another half of it is shot in Mallorca, and then whole sequences. Oh, sorry, actually, I just got my maths totally wrong on that one. You can tell I'm, I do pictures rather than numbers, right? Um, so I'd say probably more. It's like a third was done in Mallorca, a third was done in Wales, and another third was done right at the end in a studio. Um, and I think that's where Roman is a fucking genius because I can't tell the shots that are in a studio now where I, I was going to say, I, I, I saw it less than 24 hours ago and I didn't, I yeah. didn't suspect I so much as moved 10 yards from... There, the there's scene. one shot in particular where you see a truck. Oh, what I had for the studio bit, I had the truck, I had some lights off camera that are flickering to look like flames, and I had one tent and a black wrap on the on, and the floor was uh, concrete, and so you could never see the floor. Um. Uh, you couldn't see, you couldn't go either side. But we, um, there's actually a sequence where the, the, the zombies in the background out of focus, that are, they can't come any closer because well, we're only like 20 feet from the back wall. And so they're literally just shuffling from side to side. Um, soft out of the, you know, really, really soft in the background to look like they're approaching. Um, and so I think that's the, the insane thing about movies is that I'm not as, as, from a standpoint of stepping back and looking at a sequence, um, it's not the best thing I've ever done by a stretch. Um, and yet the fact that 
it really has that magic of movies where even I can't tell where we shot it and you just buy it. No, no, that's... that's I just that's, kind that's, of love that. That's <laughs> quite surreal. That's quite surreal, but yeah. Um, so in terms of the other side of the design then, and, and, and obviously this, this, this bit's a... This is where you get your kind of genre versus what, what you want to do because it's your film, is the zombie design and the rules of your zombies and stuff. Sure. What, what, what was the conversations like about how you were going to dress them? Was there any kind of obvious things that you wanted to do that would make it your zombies? Or was it kind of like, we just need zombies? Yeah, I mean, so this is, this is, a, this is a kind of development one that I probably can talk about, where I had this, you know what I'm saying, I push in all directions to start with and end up mm. coming back. There was an idea I had originally that I thought we had an opportunity. So Paul had already got this kind of quick fix where the, like, the eternal argument about zombies, about fast or slow zombies... Mm. Um, he got his quick fix, which was we're set so long after that it's just it's just simple, like kind of biodegradable material. Yeah, they're like, dying bodies. If you're fresh, you? you're quick, and if you're old, you're slow. I quite so like we, that. We, yeah, so we had the we had the best of both worlds there. I obviously then come in thinking, right, I can go somewhere with this. It's ten years, and so I had this kind of idea originally that they were evolving, and that the, the virus was evolving beyond because. Ah. And, and the, the idea that they they could that there was certain cognitive behaviour coming back, and there are actually there's a there's one character in particular in the movie who there's an echo of that still in the film. Um, no, one of the one of the baddies. Um, and again, that was uh, that comes down to Charlotte Wall saving me from my, from myself again. I ended up disappearing so far down a rabbit hole trying to explain this concept that I thought was cool and would do something new within the genre, but it took so long for such little real payoff at the end of the movie <laughs> um, that I just kind of got, yeah, safe for myself and kind of dragged back. In terms of the design, um, really, you've got to talk about Chris Fitzpatrick and his team, who yeah. I, I'd done Arrowpost 2 with. And effectively, like, Paul Hyatt, who obviously is kind of the designer in this country. Mm. And Paul had done my, my last movie, and Paul and I had stayed mates. And um, and originally, Paul was going to do it exclusively, and then he's directing now, and uh, and I so we ended up in this scenario where his film that screened actually at Friday last year, How? He was on the podcast previewing it. Yeah. Um, so I ended up helping out on that. Um uh, just because they, they were they were struggling for time and I was in prep and, and I was around and I was in London so I went in and did a little bit of stuff and helped Paul out on that and then he did a little bit of help with for me setting up but I knew Chris from Chris had worked for Paul on my last film mm. and because Paul was directing now and editing there was no way he could really do it fully and so what he effectively did was sort of just cast a, a nicely supervising gaze over Chris who, who really just launched in and, and delivered because he's Fucking brilliant. Uh, and I would love to take loads more credit for the the principal characters, but outside of a kind of basic design stuff that I kind of worked with Chris a little bit on terms of... We'd kind of, we were a bit like kind of trading war stories because we'd done, sort of done a bit of zombie-ish yeah. work with the Outpost movies. Of course. We felt we didn't really... Once I'd saved myself from my initial idea, which was going to completely reinvent the wheel, I also realised that idea, I couldn't go anywhere near as far as I wanted to. I think... What I really wanted was these insanely emaciated kind of um, characters that were out of, I don't know, that, like some kind of horrific vision that's out of a, a kind of famine crisis-like kind of look. Mm. And, and I realised that it was just too much CG work, too far too expensive, there was no way we were ever going to be able to do it. And I was really alarmed about the amount of CG it would take, given our time and money and how much I've seen CG characters kind of fuck up. Mm. Um, it's like, this is no cost to the movie, but the kind of I am legend effect <laughs> where you're just like, what, why are those people CG? Oh, okay. Like, why are they not, why what you could have done that character with physically, um, and got a performance out of them. And so beyond a bit of that, like there was a kind of certain biodegradable nature that I wanted. Um, I think the only other real thing I did was, was talking to, um, uh, Ali Mitchell, the costume designer, and I showed her the Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Okay. The the one where um, it's actually a revolution, uh, where Caesar leads a revolution um, 
it was also in like uh, Century City in LA before it was it was fully kind of populated and stuff. Yeah, and it's it's the one it's the it's the Planet of the Apes movie that shows the apes taking over in their revolution. Mm. Um, and and I showed them these I showed her these boiler suits that for some reason Roddy McDowell wears in that, and I was like, there's a kind of inherent sympathy that comes with it, like. And so she kind of took and ran with that, and the, the, so the the principal kind of bad guys, the the principal. I keep saying they're bad guys. The zombies aren't the bad guys in this movie. No, no, no. I was going to say that's the thing because I was going to say there's, there's a lovely, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but there's a lovely, there's a lovely with, with the relationship between Wilton, um, mm-hmm. what's she called, Claire, um, Claire Goose, yeah, Claire Goose, and um, the zombie she shows off at yeah. the at the beginning is very feels very much like. Like your version, as it were, of the Day of the Dead relationship, where you've got exactly that, that. When I'm talking about that boiler suit, that's exactly that's the first time you see that boiler suit, and the way Claire Claire plays it brilliantly. Claire can do. Claire is one of the loveliest people you will ever meet. She's so sweet. She doesn't have a bad bone in her body. But if you ask her to turn her cold, ruthless bitch on, she yeah. can do it brilliantly. Um, and I just wanted. I I needed in that moment for you to get. My feeling was that sequence was the sequence where it was the first time you saw one. You knew it needed to be have impact, and you needed to see it kind of from the point of view of our, our lead, Jess. Mm. But also, I kind of wanted to to just make you understand early, so it didn't get in the way of the of where we were going to go later when the film paced up. But get our point of view across, and that sense that you know that this that these aren't the baddies. That they are the the kind of that they're, they're just as they're being fucked over the same way everyone. Well, it'd be like it's like calling a shark a buddy, isn't it? I mean, they're, yeah, exactly. They're, they're, yeah. Their primal motivation is it? But there is, yeah, there it's is not sentient. It's not sentient, yeah. is it? Yeah, and there is, they are entirely as much victims as uh, as as anyone else in the movie. Now you're going to be at Fright Fest, aren't you, this year? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So uh, that's that's three Q and As you'll be uh, hosting post film, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I, they've not they've not told me yet. I'm, I'm presuming well, so. Well, there's three rooms, so I imagine you will do. Um, so, in that sense, then you're going to have three audiences to sit through the film with. What What are you? Um... I never watch them, mate. I, I can't do it. I can't. I have this burning desire to jump up in front of it and start screaming at everybody that I wanted to do it differently. <laughs> it's just it's better for the human race if I'm nowhere near. I, I literally I watch the first three or four minutes, make sure it's in sync, make sure that the grade's looking fine and the sounds are right, and then I just disappear and I come back for the last. Okay, 10 then. all right then. Well, well, it, while you're having your uh, your green room lager, <laughs> while I'm film, drinking and, my way through, and it. the film's playing out, what are you most what are you most excited for? Um... For them to see or experience in your movie, what what aspect of it? I mean, you don't, oh, have, to, I don't you know, give me a spoiler here, but just, oh, I'm terrible at that stuff. I don't know. I, this this is the part of me that becomes like my mother's son, and and it's like you just never get too mouthy about anything. I've <laughs> um, pressed your modesty button there. Is that what you saying? Yeah, completely. There's a part of me like, <laughs> that's now. I'm, I'm now desperate to turn around and go. Well, yeah, it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's fine. Um, like, it, oh no, I wouldn't know where to start on that one, mate. I honestly wouldn't. Like, um, well, I must. I mean, this doesn't spoil it because I think I think one one of my favourite things about it is the fact that you've you've set us up in a world where we know what zombies are, but we've beaten them. I think that's such yeah. a, such a such a clever spin on on what could easily it's easily you, you know there's a, there's enough films knocking about canon. American film market that are just they just put zombie in the title. Yeah, expect, exactly. Expect you to roll over and say tickle me belly. Um, but but you, but this one that's what I thought was really intelligent about this coming into it is that you're it was not... the reason I did it actually. I mean, it was like we were talking about that. I'll never forget. I got I was pitched it before I read the script, and so it was someone from the company called I knew, and they kind of told me. And they had, like, kind of, before they sent me the script, they sent me a little kind of supporting document that was the, mm. the basic setup. And and I called two people, a, a friend of mine who's a, who's a producer but not involved in this movie, and Lapsley, who ended up being the production designer on the films, production designer on all my films, and is, is one of my best friends. Uh, right, you know that thing where you said I shouldn't do another zombie film ever again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you a thing, and maybe you need to talk me out of it. But it was that. It was just that sense that 
it was I love genre and I love making genre pictures and I love and what I always want to do is kind of make that kind of film but a little bit smarter than the average bear mm. and and it just had that and it was it, it was to sit and I just couldn't say no <laughs> well no so that's the thing I think that I mean I think all good all certainly good zombie films you're mm. once you might have talked about you know that was a cool kill actually if you're not talking about what it means and what it means to be a human, then I think the zombie films failed. Yeah. In my, in some senses, because obviously... No, exactly. it's, it's like we said, I mean, it is the ultimate cliche about genre, but it's it's a cliche for a reason. But, but it, so it, it being, should hold a mirror to the world. It yeah, should, Romero, Romero but, was about human, was about civil rights. And yeah. like you say, you, you may have, it may have stumbled into your sightline while making the movie, but it was, but it, it the, the, the humanitarian crisis that we're suffering right now Mm-hmm. is a mirror to this film, you know, and, and, and in some senses... I mean, it, it, to be honest, it actually unnerved me a little um, because I was worried... There's certain there's certainly imagery in it, which is kind of... We'd already f- completely finished the movie. It was done and, and mixed and, and sitting, waiting to be released when certain other real-world images came out. And I became quite nervous that... I was I was nervous that we had unwittingly stepped into a point where we were exploiting something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that. And that was it unnerved me a little to start with. And it was only actually when when people started seeing it and they came back and they got it that I actually relaxed a little. I didn't. You, you never want to really with something like that because, like I say, when it started, we did talk. We, we talked about Syria on the very first phone call I ever had about the movie, but we also talked about the financial meltdown. Mm. It was just the sense of the Mediterranean and an island and all of this. Kind of us all cropped up after we'd done the movie. Um, honestly, honestly, for me, it's, it's this, the, the constant thing that I'm, I'm annoyed the shit out of me, what I hear in the news is where people say, we're going to, we're going to return, but we're back to normal soon. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that, that your film captures really well, is that actually, yeah. on the one hand, there is the amazing ability for human beings to survive in the most extreme situations. And it's amazing what we can achieve, mm-hmm. you know. Obviously, Danny Boyle's movie about that guy who chops his own hand off and yeah. all that kind of stuff. You know, that's the human spirit. But then what happens is when we all get together collectively, is we go, right, we're going to fuck some of them over now. Now, now we've got, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is this idea of, what I need first is is I need food, shelter, and security. Mm-hmm. And once I've got those three, then I go into self-actualization. So that's where music and art yeah, and stuff. Yeah, 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 you yeah. can't imagine somebody on the streets of bloody Syria is making paintings or or no, no, um, exactly because because that... they they just want food, survive, and they they want the bloody bombs to stop. And so we live in a world where self-actualization for the more sociopathic members of society where people will buy an AIDS drug and say, I'm going to put the price up because I can. And you're like, wow, that's an amazing thing that we would do as humans for profit. And, you know, money is only made up anyway, isn't it? But anyway, I digress. Um, Let's remind people when they can see the resort. Um, So it's showing on the Saturday of the festival, which I believe is the 27th. It's screening three times during the day, uh, once at 10.45 in the morning on the uh, Horror Channel screen, once at 1.30 on the Arrow screen, and another time at 4.15 in the afternoon on the Splice screen. Well, look, thank you very much for... Uh, no, thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure. Matt, it really has. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes. Hey, what's going on? you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we release it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to stream from on the website. listening to this podcast through iTunes and you've got five minutes to spare and you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave me a review and a comment. 
it will really help to publicise and promote the Britflix.com podcast and get more people to hear what you enjoy. Thank you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.